Welcome FinTech Talkers to another edition of the FinTech Talk Show. This is Patty, and our guests today are three future unicorn CEOs innovating in FinTech and financial services. Please welcome Devin Kincaid, CEO of Micronotes, Patrick Riley, CEO of Verdi International, and Noshad Contractor, CEO of Fable FinTech. Devin, Patrick, and Noshad are seasoned entrepreneurs innovating at the intersection of data, AI, and cross-border payments. Our talk today will focus on all things um, and how smart financial services institutions are using data and AI to get a competitive edge. Industry estimates have it that AI has a potential of creating about $1 trillion, that's $1 trillion with a T, in value in financial services, and bulk of it is in sales and marketing, followed by risk management. On the other side, cross-border payments from remittances to B2B payments continue to be in the area of fintech activity with new models and coverage of new geographies. Are you interested in how AI is going to provide competitive advantage to sales and marketing in banks? or how it'll transform the credit underwriting process in a very compliant way? What is happening in the wide world of cross-border payments, especially in Asia? Well, listen on as my guests have all the answers. Welcome Devin, Patrick, Noshad to the FinTech Talk Show. Good to be here. Thank you. Great to be here, thank you. Great, yeah, I'm looking forward to the hour. before we get into all things fintech and and AI and data, you guys have a very diverse background. Talk a little bit about your backgrounds and what made you arrive at what you're doing now. And uh, who wants to go first? May Pat, maybe you want to go first? Sure, be be happy to. Um, well, you know, uh, I'm an economist by training. I've spent the first half of my career really in very large banks in the U.S. J.P. Morgan Chase, Citibank, Wells Fargo. Uh, Royal Bank of Canada, and then headed up North American products for Equifax. I'm I'm one of the innovators of uh, the first commercially viable a- AI and ML uh, that goes all the way back to the uh, to the 80s. And uh, you know the um, uh, for us, uh, it's really all about how we uh, how we reach and serve financial institutions really well. So. Great. Thank you, Patrick. A lot of kind of big bang experience. So you know how it works inside out. So it's great to kind of be in the outside and solve the problems inside. So I would love to hear hear um, how you're applying that experience. Um, who wants to go next? Um, Devin? Sure. Um, uh, hello, my name is Devin Kincaid. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Micronotes based in Boston. Uh, Micronotes is an AI-driven marketing automation company serving about 100 financial institutions uh, in the United States. Um, I'm a serial tech entrepreneur, been building tech companies for about 35 years. Um, and the, the company is, is currently a, uh, an Experian portfolio company. Um, and really, I got interested in this because uh, I, I really saw uh, when I was... Um, doing some graduate work at, at MIT, I really saw at the time an opportunity to use big data and, uh, and, and models to sort of automate the process of uh, helping consumers find better ways uh, to manage their personal finances. And so that's essentially what the company does today. We're helping financial institutions help their customers get a lot more out of the relationship that they currently have beyond just starting a new checking account or something. So, um, so yeah, excited to be here and excited to, to, uh, to have the conversation. Thank you, Devin. Yeah, that customer centricity, right? So the folks like Jeff Bezos and others like successful big tech companies, they keep talking about it, kind of put the customer at the center of everything and everything will fall in place rather than worry about your internal operations, internal products and stuff. So I I think what you're doing, kind of using data to help banks do that is phenomenal, meaning it, 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 it can have great impact for kind of banks to be kind of operationally agile and customer centric like um, like some of those big tech companies. 
would would love to um, um, hear more of what you're doing. Um, last but not least, Nashad, you want to kind of introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you, um, how you got to where you are? Yeah, hi, uh, I'm Nashad. I run Fable Fintech. It's a technology company that helps predominantly banks, but also telecom companies and other people who need technology to create cross-border transactions and make them more kind of efficient. Our end goal is to you know, try and send money from polar bears in the North Pole to penguins in the South Pole. But uh, as of now, I can safely say that I'm neither artificial nor very intelligent. It's great <laughs> to be here. Thank you, Paddy. Now, I love the polar bears to the penguins. Um, um, and and, and that, that, that's a great way to look at payments and financial services and cross-border payments. There's a lot of friction. So I'd love to kind of um, ask you and talk a little bit about that um, uh, later on in the show. Um, but th this is great. Um, um, but thank you. Thank you for um, your opening remarks, guys. Um, as I mentioned in my introduction, um, let's kind of get into the AI part and then, then we'll get into the cross-border as well. Um, AI's value creation is estimated to be a trillion dollars in financial services over kind of this decade. Um, a lot of it is in sales and marketing. Um, Pat and Devin, you're, you're kind of looking at it at, at, at the sales and maybe also at the credit underwriting, the risk management side of things. Um, maybe talk a little bit about how you're applying it and what you're doing in a little bit more detail. Maybe Devin, go to you first. Sure. So, um, so what we're really doing is, um, is, is leveraging, first of all, multiple data sets to try and get a, a good understanding of what the customer's individual customer's financial situation is, as well as uh, understanding what options they have uh, with in terms of, uh, you know, bank financing. So for example, um, we can look at, uh, and, and again, this is, you know, back to regulatory and, and compliance, uh, you know, th through a fully FCRA compliant system, you know, we can pull in the information the bank has on the customer. We can pull in 700 terabytes of, of, of data from the credit bureaus, and then we can pull in the bank's rate sheets and lending criteria and all that stuff. And, and through that, we can figure out, for example, that, that Fred has, uh, you know, has $250,000 worth of equity in his home, but he also has $50,000 worth of credit card debt. And it's a kind of a no brainer for, for him to uh, refinance that debt into a home equity loan and, and cut his interest rate by 18 points. I mean, and, and so uh, that in and of itself is not, is more decision tree work as opposed to AI. But once you do all of that work and you begin processing the, the feedback from the consumers, that's where we're, we're leveraging uh, AI to make better predictions of, of who actually to talk to uh, about these sorts of, uh, you know, these sorts of opportunities, because the bank does not, you know, banks don't have an infinite amount of resources to go out and chase down, uh, you know, chase down loan opportunities, uh, but they should um, be chasing down the ones that have a greater than 50% uh, propensity for actually doing the refinancing work. So, um, and it's not just refinancing, it's, it's you know, it's, you know, do you need to, you know, do you need low cost capital, which is available through through the equity in your home, you know, and you're fully credit worthy and, you know, kind of, you know, it, it systematically and programmatically surfaces a lot of opportunity. And we're just finding a, a huge amount of, of, of interest primarily in, in, you know, from the, from the consumers, um, which of course, uh, you know, we're trying, the goal is to help improve uh, the financial lives of the banks or credit unions customers. Uh, and the byproduct of that is the bank does a lot more business uh, with those, uh, with those customers or members as they call them in credit union speak. Um, so, so, and, and the other thing, the last thing I would just offer is that, you know, um, AI is, is, is a tool um, and model building is a tool and it is not appropriate for every situation uh, by any means. So uh, I, I hope that everyone understands that it's, it's just a tool 
it, it's a very complicated tool to use and, and a very complex tool. And, you know, so it shouldn't ever be viewed as a panacea solution for, for all applications. You have to understand what you're trying to accomplish, and then you have to determine whether or not model building and, and you know, and, 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 and uh, predictive analytics or, or AI, other AI models are appropriate. Because the fact of the matter is that, you know, few people, even AI engineers can, can fully explain how the thing works. And so that makes, you know, that, that, that makes, that brings a sense of complexity to the, to any given tech stack that is just not necessary if you, if you don't need it. So anyway, um, that's, that's what we're doing. And, and I think that's, that's really what we're finding in doing sort of mass production work uh, and using AI. But the key thing is to remember, you got to, you got to stay focused on the use case. You got to stay focused on adding value to a person, an individual person's life uh, and then all the and, and 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 hope that the byproducts of that are are a benefit to the to the future. yeah no very very interesting so looks like you have a credit focus but is it applicable or are you looking at kind of more of the investment side as well and other well, kind yeah of we also have we all that that's the that's the the credit use case um, we also do a lot of work on the deposit side we do a lot of work on predicting you know who should be using mobile deposit capture and isn't. And then we, we automatically talk to those, those customers through the digital banking channels about why they might want to do that. For example, you know, why are you, you know, that they report to us, you know, through our, through our app that, that, that they're taking time off of work to go deposit their check. And they're, they're angry that they have to sit in a, in a line to do that. Gosh, if that wasn't a, a billboard, you know, uh, uh, child for, for, <laughs> remote deposit capture, I don't know what is. And so, so, so the, you know, the, the, the system is constantly learning through the interactions and it's trying to help customers just honestly improve their lives uh, by, by taking advantage of, you know, most of the, you know, most of those things are all free. Uh, but, but a lot of, a lot of folks just don't know that, you know, they can use them. Yeah. So almost in target stage, just to use kind of Elon Musk and the autonomous driving kind of metaphor, right? So, financial services or us consumer or small business or even corporate financial services they're going to be autonomous looks like in 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 due time um you, you'd have ai maybe from the bank or maybe your personal ai kind of driving so um very interesting times we'll see how this evolves and love to um get your thoughts a little bit more on that um down the line uh, devin um, Pat, um, maybe go to you. You're doing something very similar. Uh, you're applying data and AI to the underwriting process. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. The, uh, you know, Verde builds lending solutions that enable uh, regulated lenders principally, although not all our customers are regulated lenders, but regulated lenders, not just in the U.S., but around the world. I think we're in about five continents right now really increase approval rates. One of the big issues is, you know, with um, uh, regulated lenders uh, operating under really tight corridors of performance and standards and satisfying institutional expectations, on average, um, between five and seven-fold growth improvements in the institutions we serve, uh, doubling ROAs, um, reducing uh, uh, the risk exposure that they have, and also the volatility around that risk. Um, while increasing regulatory compliance. And so we use, we use the technology, you know, how do, how do we actually do that with AI ML? Because, you know, one of the things that Devin pointed out is it's not appropriate for every use case. And I would agree with that. The, um, uh, you know, for a regulator, a regulator has to be able to look and say, well, how did that decision really happen? And how did you decide to do what you were going to do? And how do we know that people were treated fairly? And how do we, how do we know that that, that decision is reliable and is going to make sure that, you know, if depositors are really the people funding those loans, that we don't have undue risk exposure. But what we do is we take a decidedly different approach. We sort of say, you know, a lot of those models historically have been built by really, really smart people. And so imagine if what you did was the AI is actually uh, the people doing that work, right? So effectively, we take those brains and we put them in a box. And then what they produce, the AI product, 
is static, reviewable, white box solution, something that you can put in front of a regulator and review. To give you an idea of how well that works, um, over the last 15 years, we've underwritten 1.5 trillion US around the globe. Um, and even last year, the uh, Federal Reserve, having seen our work and fully understanding what we do, actually asked us to come in and put on a two-day training program about best practice in these kinds of techniques. How do we take AI to drive the cost out of really high power solutions that radically expand? You can imagine a five-fold expansion in your, in your reach of who you can say yes to. That means yeah, that's just not a win for the bank. That means that people who have historically been told no now can actually get a yes. And that's a, that's a big deal. But society gains as well when that happens. It's not just the lender. It's not just the borrower. But what happens is that capital then goes to use to help economies grow. And so that's what we really focus on. You know, and, you know, if you've ever seen the movie Beautiful Mind, there's this idea of Nash equilibrium. Well, John Nash had this idea that said, if I really understand all the parties at play, I can find that point in the middle where we can all come together. So what we do is we create that space where we understand the stakeholders, the regulator, you know, the bank, the investors, the borrower, the community. And then we solve for that position where everybody wins. And for that reason, we're able to do this in many places. And, you know, while my career is founded in really big institutions and we do serve a lot of very large institutions, we also serve institutions that are some of the smallest in the world in some of the most remote markets in the world. So this AI technology, when leveraged well, is really a very, very powerful catalyst for a lot of good stuff. But you can't let it function naively. You have to, you have to tell it what's important, right? If, if being inclusive is important, you teach it how to be inclusive, right? If, if being fair is important, you teach it how to be fair, and then it'll play by those rules. Very interesting. Yeah, financial inclusion is top of mind in, in definitely in the US, but across the globe and everybody's tried different things. But maybe what you're saying, Pat, AI may have that kind of silver bullet um, yeah. because you well, can- Well, AI has that beautiful thing that it's not, um, right? It doesn't start off with prejudices, right? It's looking at the data. However, what you need to do is inform and say, you know, in the U.S., we use a term called protected class. In some places, uh, the priority may be on rural markets. and other priorities, it may be on a particular minority group. But whatever that definition is where we're trying to break down walls, you can teach an AI system that it's a priority to break down that wall. And, and it, then it does that very, very well. But it really starts with the condition of saying, really, what are we trying to achieve? How do we go about doing it? How do we empower women? in marketplaces where historically women have not had the same kind of access to opportunities, different minority groups, and so on. And that's exactly what we do. Yeah, no, no, fascinating. One thing comes to mind kind of a little off topic, but I'll throw it out. Maybe we can have an offline conversation on this or, or talk about it today uh, is the same thing we're seeing in, in the venture capital, right? Access to venture capital is very kind of fragmented. Some segments get it and some don't and stuff like that. And, and a lot of people are kind of working on it, trying to see, okay, what, why is that? And how can we do they're setting aside funds for say minority and underrepresented founders. But what you're saying, you were able to get up um, for the bank's lending capacity in a risk adjustment, I mean, not increasing any risk um, with AI, maybe some of that can be applicable in other, not just debt, but in other areas I, like that. I think absolutely. I think an important aspect of this is how, um, what I would call resilience, your ability to um, uh, experience something that's challenging to you and work your way through it, your ability to identify opportunities and take advantage of it. All these things are attributes of whether an individual is going to repay, right? It's this ability to solve problems see opportunities and respect the interests of other people in that relationship because there's going to be this borrowing relationship, right? Well, that gets expressed in ways, in different cultures, different ways, in different life experiences, different ways. 
And so what we have to do is, is be able to see not things through a single lens, you know, a, a FICO score, uh, you know, which is most people are familiar with in the U.S., is not exactly a single model, but it really is a relatively narrow view of the middle of the bell curve. And so there are a lot of groups that end up getting underrepresented or undersupported by that kind of scoring system. And so when we look and say, if I were going to look at you as an individual and understand your opportunity for success, what would that be? Devin has to kind of do the same thing, right? It's not a one size fits all. You've got to kind of step back and say, what life journey are they on? How do I identify with where they're at in that life journey? And then align a solution set that is good for the shareholders, is good for them, and then crafts a win. And I I think that um, that's one of the most beautiful things of AI. Because we're not limited in the number of brains we have, we have the opportunity to really task them at solving these problems that historically have left very large segments of the population excluded, marginalized, or otherwise underserved. Fascinating. No, uh, uh, totally agree. Let me get Nashad into the conversation as well. Uh, Nashad, why is cross-border payment still a big deal? Banks have been doing this for a long time. Um, uh, Fintechs have kind of come at it on the remittances side and even kind of the Ripple and cross-border payments solving your blockchain, other things, the other players doing it. So where is the friction today um, and, and where is the opportunity, Nashad? Before I start on that, I'd like to uh, use AI for venture capital and see if the AI engine values a company at a billion dollars just on PowerPoint slides. I really would be very, very intriguing for me to see that happen through an <laughs> AI engine. Uh, but uh, coming back to uh, cross-border transactions, um, the, the major difference between a cross-border transaction and a domestic transaction is the exchange rate. In the, in the domestic transaction, the exchange rate is one is to one. And in a cross-border transaction, it's X is to Y. While that's how it seems, it's very, very far away from how it is. And the reason is because the moment the transaction goes cross-border, there's volatility in that exact exchange rate. There are people who are not supposed to be transacting freely, trying to transact freely. And you know, for, for the sake of making it light, we always say, while Osama is not allowed, but neither is Obama. And you know, the, there is the opportunity of making sure it's reported appropriately. We want to make sure it's going to the right person for the right reason, which is where purpose mapping comes in. And the friction actually is not so much in the payment itself, but it's in the ability to collect these informations appropriately, you know, line up the ducks in a row, and then figure out whether this transaction has happened in the right way or not. It has it, has it gone over the right rails or not. Um, is it being charged for appropriately or not. And in the traditional kind of cross-border transactions where, you know, correspondent banking was used, um, the more the intermediary banks, the higher the cost and hence higher the fees. So what Fable FinTech tries to do is to remove the inefficiency from a cross-border transaction. It doesn't try to reinvent the wheel. We still use Swift or Ripple or Western Union Business Solutions or Visa Direct or MasterCard Send, something that already exists. So we don't create a new set of rails. We just make sure that an intelligent routing engine at the end of it routes it appropriately by and thereby reducing the cost of that transaction. A, not necessarily cost, actually, it optimizes the transaction. It, it gives it a good combination of speed and cost wherever logically required. And also, it makes sure that it's completely regulatory compliant. The one big thing that people miss when they talk about cross-border transactions is they say, is it America compliant? Is it, is it Dodd-Frank Act compliant? Is it whatever? Well, unfortunately for everybody, there are two regulators in every cross-border transaction, the originating regulator and the regulator where the money terminates. And I'll give you a very easy, tangible example. When you send money from the United States to, say, Pakistan or Afghanistan or Sri Lanka or Egypt, none of those governments have any restrictions on the amount of cash that can be delivered across the counter. Whereas in India, you cannot deliver more than 50,000 Indian rupees over the counter. So... Our platform or any platform needs to be cognizant that while it's Dodd-Frank Act compliant in the United States, it also is not allowing a 50,000 rupee or more cash pickup option while processing that transaction. This is just a very small example that is easily understood. The layers of complication are pretty you know, heavy and the choices available to banks 
whether I should, whether I should use Dow Jones or Forco Software Experience to do my you know uh, transaction credit scoring or customer credit scoring, whether I should use Yodly or Plaid to do my account verification, whether I should use Western Union Business Solutions or Swift or Visa Direct to be able to deliver the money, those are all decisions that need to be taken in an eight to ten second window. So if your platform is not optimized and it's not appropriate, it'll never happen. The other important thing to know is that as of today, in my personal opinion, very large transactions still are not ready for disruption. They don't, they don't warrant the disruption. They don't need to be made more efficient because the inefficiency is absorbed by the very high revenue. A $25 million cross-border transaction makes a lot of money for a bank. They don't mind hiring an extra resource for it. Whereas a $25,000 transaction where the effort is exactly the same as a $25 million transaction for a bank, that's where technology plays an important role. Very interesting. So, so if I look at, you covered a lot of ground there, thanks, Nashad, and you have the data collection for reporting and regulatory compliance. Obviously, there's the two sides, the originator and the destination. And, and then there are the pipes, and you support multiple pipes. If Drill down a little bit into the pipes angle, right? So, so obviously, there's CBDC and things like that that's coming up with central banks, or at least some places, especially in Asia, it's a little ahead with Singapore and Hong mm-hmm. Kong and others doing it. China also has some big deal. So what's your kind of overall kind of perspective? Obviously, SWIFT still processes a bulk of the transactions. And then you have geopolitical events like the war in Europe that kind of changes the dynamic a little bit, or are there are new rules and things. So what's your perspective on going forward, kind of the pipes uh, for cross-border? So the pipes uh, will be developed by people who are in the pipes business. It could be, like I said, in this case, till five years back, it was just Swift. Now there's Ripple, there's Stellar, there's five other blockchain-based companies. There's Visa Direct, there's MasterCard Send, there's Western Union Business Solutions, there's Amex, there's a host of them. So our job is to make sure that as many pipes as possible are available and there is easy decisioning which pipe should be used for which transaction. In some cases, you'll not believe what I'm saying. It could be the same person sending money to the same country using a different pipe because just the purpose of sending money is different. So there's a, there's a large set of parameters that, are, that goes into creating this kind of decisioning. There's only one parameter that is, that is mandatory, which is availability of funds. Once funds are available, then you can choose whether you know, this is better or that's better. Because if, you do, if, you have, if you've got funds in an, in an option that is very cheap, but you don't have the money there, you just can't use it. So that's the only, uh, you know, among all the decisioning parts, the only one which is mandatory is the availability of funds or credit. Having said that, it's, you know, it's also sometimes important to have um, redundancy. So for some reason, you know, everything is technology-based. For whatever reason, if the pipes of, say, one, uh, one of the pipes is down, the system should be able to easily route it through an alternative channel after a couple of tries. Um Again, those kind of decisions have to be made by customers, but customers need technology to make those decisions for medium to small value transactions. Um, in the cross-border, coming back to CBDC and all the other stuff, you know, I mean, theoretically speaking, I can transact on my platform. I can take American Airlines miles and send them to India as, as, as currency. The problem there is that there is no centralized exchange that says 25 American Express miles, American Airlines miles are equal to 20, 200 Indian rupees. If that were there, it's a value transaction, value transfer platform. Whatever value is legally or logically acceptable by both the sender and the receiver can be transacted. So if CBDCs become a reality in a certain corridor, we'll process it. If uh, you know Zimbabwe loses all its currencies and it all completely goes into crypto, then all money transfers to Zimbabwe will have to be on crypto, whether I like it or not. <laughs> Similarly, you know, in, in economies where there is less trust because of multiple factors. Crypto is seen to be kind of the savior. Very, very difficult for me to predict which, which currency will do well or which, which uh, form factor will do where. Our job is to make sure that our clients are not caught with their pants down should their client choose you know, form factor A or form factor B. No. Good, good, good point. And I like like your value proposition, right? Things will happen, innovate on that, but you want to support it from kind of the usage perspective. 
and and that that's wonderful that's um that's that's a good good way to go about things um kind of switching gears and this is for anyone who wants to take it and maybe we can just go around the table um the, the big kahuna or the big 500 pound gorilla is the current economic situation definitely in the u.s but even across the world um there's the r word obviously there's a debate whether we are in the r word or not but uh, irrespective of that um there's some inflation concerns some equity markets issues crypto winter in summer so to speak um so a lot a lot of things are going on people are watching on the sidelines expense uh watching expenses as well investments so given that lens, um, even say your potential prospective clients like banks are cutting costs or at least kind of trying to be efficient or focused on revenue increasing projects. So in that lens, how, how are you operating differently or how, you, how are you kind of going about um, differently um, to, to um uh, going about, I, I think we lost Noshala. Hopefully, he joins back. Um, how you are um, addressing your business? So, a, 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 anyone? I, I'm happy to step in. Um, you know, for, for us, it's very interesting uh, when uh, we actually uh, benefit financial institutions on um, both. Uh, who do I do business with? And now that I'm doing business with them. How do I really serve them well and share uh, serve the shareholders well, serve these community objectives well? And uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we've we've been around for 15 years, and so when we when we move into um, a zone like this, as we did in 07 and 08, a business actually increased for us because uh, 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 financial institutions are very interested in uh, eliminating uh, risk, exposure, uncertainty maintaining continuity, uh, continuing to drive forward. And so uh, tools that allow them to both say, how do I continue to engage with my customers in new ways and, 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 and continue to move forward, while at the same time safeguarding and dealing with some of the uncertainty and challenges that come with higher unemployment or higher inflation or um, uh, pipeline disruptions, various other kinds of things that tend to destabilize economies and make people nervous. And, and let's face it, I mean, um, uh, bankers are not the most courageous people. I mean, by, by nature, there is a level of risk aversion that exists within a banker. If you think about it, I mean, and I don't want to be hard on, on them. I mean, it, uh, you know, they, they supply a product as a, as a lender um, with uh, no certainty that you're actually going to give the funds back. Right. This is not like going into a grocery store and buying craft cheese. This is a this is a, a riskier proposition. So I, I respect that. But because of that, the um, uh, uncertainty in the marketplace drives a particular guardedness. And so if you're driving solutions to them that help them reduce that level of uncertainty and see things more clearly, uh, that's inherently valuable. And so our business has actually increased as we've gone through this. And uh, but it shifted from uh, a heavy emphasis on origination to now a more balanced emphasis between origination and account management. Wonderful, yeah. Uh, I was at a conference in New York like a couple of months ago, and there was that recurring theme that downtimes are the best times to build. And if you're building well, and if you have a good business, that downtimes are better than <laughs> than uptimes because then there's capitals flowing around freely, and a lot of things are happening. But Devin and Oshad, what what are you like besides your own business? How you're running it, being, being more capital efficient, kind of how you're anything about the economic situation now is changing how you're doing your business. Yeah, I, I would sort of build on Patrick's point. Um, so, so a couple of things. One is I mean, let's just you know, take a, a, an example that everyone can understand, which is interest rates have changed a bit in the last 12 months, uh, which has significantly changed the, the lending environment. And if, if you look at a specific use case, for example, mortgages, you know, 12 months ago, there were, you know, people with pitchforks and, <clears throat> and, and, uh, and, and torches, you know, trying to break down the door of the bank to get their mortgage refinanced. And, and now it's what you hear is crickets on the refinancing front. 
Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, the, the amount of equity people have built up in their homes is driving a, you know, a HELON and HELOC extravaganza right now. And so, um, so what, what we're finding, and, and I, think it's, I think it's realistic, is that the technology, and, and it, bankers see this in, in real time, but it's more difficult, as, as Patrick was describing, because of risk aversion and stuff, for, for them to react to it. And, and, so, and so what we're finding is that the technology that we, we have to deploy into the marketplace has to, has to be completely dynamic and adaptable uh, between those two market conditions. It needs to understand without anyone telling it that it needs to move from, you know, from a refinancing focus to a HELON focus or a HELOC focus in, in that particular segment. And that's true whether you're on the deposit side or whether you're on the loan side. Um, and and, and I, I just think that, you know, we're, we're finding that uh, the, the that the financial institutions themselves just struggle without technology to do that by just, you know, retooling and, oh my gosh, what do I do with all these, these lenders who I, who aren't very busy right now. And, and, and so the technology has got to be, uh, has got to be adaptable. It has to be able to understand and contemplate all of those different, all of those different environments and, and automatically, automatically adapt. Um, so that would that would be my remark on sort of the broader, uh, you know, the, the charge to the to us technology people is: can your technology to adapt to in any economic environment in which this financial institution has to operate? And and that's an important question. And you, the, the answer damn well better be yes. You know, it's a, I think an interesting point that you're making there. And then how do you go about as a technology provider? How do you go about doing that? And you know, we capture uh, across just the U.S. probably somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to nine billion data series that describe what's happening in an economy, what's happening in a society and a culture, and so on. Right down to, uh, you know, what's happening on a street corner. Uh, what's you know, what kind of activity is? How's activity changing on a cell tower, and so on and so forth. So, what what the systems do if you structure well is, you know. You're in the you're in the Bay Area, Patty. You know, if you if you go over the mountains a little bit into the Central Valley of California, those are two entirely different worlds. And and how you how you uh, form a system and give it the opportunity to recognize the nuances between uh, the people, say in in your immediate community and the pistachio and stone fruit farmers in the Central Valley, is important. I mean, I I think Devin hit it right on the spot, and so. Uh, giving it the information and giving it the context to uh, weight those things intelligently, look at changes. You know, I was looking at a statistic the other day that I, I hadn't considered until recently, which was um, delinquencies on cell phone data because on mobile phone data, a, a change pattern has happened in the U.S. where people would never, uh, you know, uh, the, the last thing they would uh, fail to pay would be their mortgage. Well, you know, to now, uh, you know, um, the cell phone is a is a temple of worship. You know, <laughs> it's a, it is it is a very vital connection to the world, and and so to watch delinquencies increase and payment delinquencies increase on cell phones is a new signal. And I think to to Devin's point, adapting to these changes and the way people view things and how priorities are um, is important. What's valuable for technology uh, builders and solution builders is the ability to detect these shifting societal patterns quickly and then incorporate them into what we do so um, uh, business decision makers are empowered with them. No, very good point. Dashal, any anything to add on how you're handling the economic situation? Yeah, so I mean, uh, we're just using the old-fashioned salt analogy saying, you know, whether uh, salt becomes $5 a pound or $500 a pound, I'm going to have two ounces in my meal. And if we live by that maxim, you know, we're usually quite capital efficient all the time. So I don't think, uh, I think if you're, if you're capital efficient as a, as a, as a culture, uh, that's good for you, irrespective of whether times are good or bad, because, you know, I've got 300 employees, I need to pay their salaries, whether it's, whether times are good or bad. And, 
uh, if we've been sensible about it and if we plan to be sensible about it all over the time, we will hopefully come out on the on the, on the better side of uh, all the bloodbath. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing on the on the on the on the credit side is also, you know, it, one of the reasons, you know, I mean, to uh, to Pat's point, when I used to work at Vodafone, we we actually made this cartoon in India where people were, you know, uh, there were there were less toilets and more cell phones. So people were actually, you know, taking a crap on the rail tracks, but actually talking on a cell phone at the same time. And, uh, you know, if, if people are stopping to if, have stopped, stopped paying or have started defaulting on their on their mobile phone payments, A, that amount is so small compared to, say, a mortgage. And B, it's so much more important to have your mobile phone going than to have a home to live in. You can rent your home, but you can't, you know, get your data you need to get on your mobile phone. That's how we have become. The, the biggest problem, in my opinion, will be faced by that straight-off society who kind of constantly lives beyond their means. And, you know, they will suffer, in my opinion, whether the economy is good or bad, because they're constantly living beyond whatever means they today have. So if their means are $100, they, they're borrowing or living off 120 If their means are 1000 they're living off 1200 So I think, uh, you know, these kind of things are very, very, I would say, A, particular to people, but also very particular to Cultural, cultural groups, certain groups will behave differently and so certain groups will behave differently. So, yeah, I mean, my personal opinion is that I'm, like I said, I'm not from the, from the lending uh, or borrowing uh, world, but uh, behaviorally, at least I'm seeing what, what I'm seeing around me is exactly what I just said. All right. Great, great um, discussion, guys. Um, in, in these shows, I like to kind of talk about the futures. So I want to kind of pivot a little bit on, on, crystal balling, prognostication, and just looking into the future. Uh, one of the things I kind of make out from what um, you, all three of you are doing is you're taking kind of specific areas and kind of putting that as, as, as a service in financial services. Um, so if I step back and look, and, and I've written about this quite a bit in the fintech space uh, as a whole, uh, we have banks and then the aggregators started coming in like Yodley and then Plaid, obviously everybody knows. And then the banks themselves started kind of doing their open banking or banking as a service um, and bringing in fintechs, enabling fintechs with that or leasing the charter, whatever the kind of the business use case in Europe, it was more regulatory compliance to PSD2 and that kind of stuff. And then off late, the last few years, there has been bass fintechs like Unit and Treasury Primes and others who also do that, a plan and others also play in that space. My thesis is that you guys are in kind of the same space. This is all a continuum. Obviously, you can have broad um, data aggregators that aggregate everything or their niche uh, players who aggregate certain things and build kind of use cases on top or value-added stuff on top like you're doing or in the cross-border sense, you're kind of providing that as a service and, and letting all the details, the pipes and stuff hidden, so to speak, for whoever wants to play around. So the whole continuum of data aggregators, BAS and, and kind of maybe these verticalized um, services offerings in sales and underwriting or transaction processing is kind of all I see is at a continuum. Um, if that were to be too, I'd like your kind of input on that. Um, how do you see the space evolving? So obviously there are big players, there are niche players like you, the banks are playing. So uh, interesting in that. And maybe on the backside of this, we can touch a little bit on kind of how the regulatory landscape has to maybe evolve or is evolving to support some of these um, develops, uh, development in a continuum. Who wants to take so that first? So I'll take I'll take it first. Uh, you know, since since our company is called Fable FinTech, I'll kind of start with the story. Uh, you know, I learned very late in life, almost like just two or three years back, that my parents and my teachers were lying to me that the tortoise won the race because it was slow and steady. <laughs> uh, I I I realized that uh, you know the reason the tortoise won the race is because there was nobody who was willing to or able to wake up the hare in time. Uh, however slow or steady or whatever the tortoise may have been, had the hair woken up even five minutes or five, probably even one minute before that, he would have won the race. Uh, the analogy I'm drawing with this kind of crazy story is that, you know, in, 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 in our particular case, uh, the business which we facilitate was always run by the banks. 
And the reason why the, the whole fintech industry came in there and kind of took it over is because the banks, A, were sleeping, and B, there was nobody like Favel at that time to wake them up. Uh, having said that, one of the big things that, uh, you know, we discussed about 10 minutes back is that, you know, the appetite to take risk in a banker is low. That's not driven by him being a, a risk-averse person. That many times is driven by the regulators thinking that banks should be more careful and hence they should be fined more heavily for things that, for the, for the same mistake or for lack of a better word, uh, for the same audacity that uh, a fintech company might take and the banks might say, oh, it's a fintech company. They're not, they're not supposed to be as vigilant. So, you know, let's just wrap them on the knuckles and let them get away from, from a fine. Um, but the good part about our industry is that, you know, in whatever, I, I don't know, three, 4,000 years of whatever kinds of payments, nothing really has changed. It's, it's very similar to how but there was a wheel and then there was a wooden wheel and then there was a metal wheel, and but the wheel is still the wheel. So a payment is still, unfortunately for us, uh, a payment. And where, you know, how much ever people might try to tell you that, no, it's not. Uh, it's actually, an, at the end of the day, very similar to me putting my hand in my wallet, taking out a $100 note, giving it to you, you collecting it from me and then putting it in your wallet. It just happens much faster. So we don't realize it, but the, but the chronology is exactly the same. Um, our, our objective is just to make that make sure that chronology A is same and B is as safe and secure as possible. Wonderful. So waking up the or and empowering, enabling the hair to win the race, and we'll write new, new fables um, with that. No pun or pun intended. Uh, <laughs> Devin, uh, you want to go next? Yeah. yeah. So, so a couple things. So one is, so I, I spent the first twenty years of my career in a completely different industry. I was in the uh, semiconductor industry following Moore's law, which moves pretty quickly, as we all know. Um, one of the reasons it moves so quickly is because it has, um, it has adopted standards which allow technology that is built to a technology roadmap to be rapidly deployed at scale in production. And one of the things that horrified me when I arrived in the financial services industry, so I you know, when I first arrived here, I was like, okay, so where's the standards organization? And, and the room was silent. And I'm like, well, how the hell do you, de how do you determine what technology needs to be built and how to deploy it at scale when it's needed to anyone? Um, so, so I think that, I, I think that sort of open banking and open APIs are, are, are an attempt to get at that core problem, which is you arrive at, at a large financial institutions and they, they tell you it's going to cost, you know, it's going to cost $6 million in six months and 14 committee meetings to change one line of code, which was written in 1972 uh, using COBOL uh, in order to implement a solution that is needed today. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that um, open banking and, 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 and open APIs are, are going to become uh, more of a, a, a means of standardizing for deployment because it's just not a very good way to innovate uh, the, the, way this, the way the financial services innovates today. Um, yeah, from a regulatory uh, uh, perspective, um, you know, I, I, think, I think the regulators are actually... Um, uh, are, are actually beginning to contemplate some of these faster moving, more opaque technologies like AI. Um, although truth be told, you know, if, if you're using, you know, um, if you're using a multi-step model, you know, there's, there's 17 people in the United States who can actually explain how it works and none of those are, are, are in the regulatory space. So I, I don't have a lot of confidence uh, that, you know, uh, that th that's going to happen anytime soon. It's just too complicated. And I was, was going to mention it earlier when, when Pat was talking, but, you know, I, I even to this day, given how long things like FICO have been around, you know, FICO is a, FICO's a, a basically a propensity model, right? It, it takes a bunch of attributes and then it provides a score as to what's the likelihood that this this particular record is going to pay their debt back. Um, 
And, and the, the, the thing that if, if you're in the production AI business, the first rule of, <laughs> that everyone learns is you, you don't combine a score with other attributes that because that, that, that compromises the, the whole purpose of the exercise, uh, which is to actually use a subset of attributes that have information value to make a prediction. And so, uh, and, and no, uh, no matter how many intelligent people I ask in, in the industry, there's no good answer to why do we do that today? Why do you, why do you say, well, it has to be, in order to make this loan, I have to have a FICO score of this and I have to have these 17 other attributes met. Well, aren't those included? Anyway, we're a long, long way and hopefully the industry will, you know, from understanding, hopefully the industry will begin to get some of these basic concepts of how AI actually works uh, and, 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 and make better decisions about about things like lending, as, as Patrick was mentioning. Right. Early. Last thing is just, no matter what all of us build, um, at the end of the day, we're going to run straight into behavioral economics uh, when it comes to consumer adoption of whatever technologies we build. And if we don't contemplate that, um, no matter how cool our technology is or, or how wonderful it is, consumers aren't going to adopt it in mass. Uh, and, we're, and we're not going to understand why we're going to sit around looking at each other saying, you know, geez, this, this seems like a really good value proposition for this consumer. How come they're not acting on it? Well, there's a whole world of study called behavioral economics with Dan Ariely and, and his group have, have written extensively uh, on this. He's got a great book out called Predictably Irrational, which I'd certainly encourage everyone to read. But behavioral economics is the is sort of the the thing that people don't talk about when they're building when they're building consumer tech, uh, at least in in financial services, and and it's it's the difference between you know uh, you know getting adoption and not getting adoption. And right. So I think I think that's just an, another component. So I'll, yeah, yeah, it is it is probably a topic for a full hour, but interesting point, um, Devin. Uh, Silicon Valley pays a lot of attention to that, especially when they're coming up with new new things, right? Like the social media and everything. Every every decade or every generation, there are new things that are coming on. So how do you promote adoption? Um, there's an interesting expression in the API world, right? So if you build the APIs, will people start using it? And the often answer is no. You have to kind of create incentives or or understand why they would use. So it's kind of a microcosm of what you're saying. Like if you build financial services and innovation, be it bank, be it fintech or whoever, um, how do you impress adoption and how do you kind of convince the general population and businesses to adopt that that's that's maybe a topic for another podcast but thank thank you for the your remarks um pat your your comments i know we're coming to the top of the hour yeah just a, a little dovetail on uh, on these comments were um about uh, 25 years ago i was doing a study trying to look and say we, we had these population of people who were very frustrated because they didn't save as much as they'd like to save I tried to create a something. Most of them were in debt. I tried to create a solution that basically allowed them to, as money would come in, sort of partition it out to satisfaction of debt and sort of lock some stuff into savings. And because these two things kind of coexisted, I remember in a focus group, somebody uh, sort of enunciating it very well. They said, you know, we're sort of putting the the sacred next to the profane, and I don't feel comfortable about that, right? Is this idea that I don't trust myself and therefore I'm now tempted to tap in. And I think this issue of behavioral economics, I think is, you know, I, I've spent my career uh, as a behavioral economist and saying, how do we, how do we understand these things that maybe from a banker's perspective aren't rational, but nevertheless represent how people actually do, in fact, make decisions and consider things like switching costs and adoption and, and perceptions of value, right? It is not mine to dictate on you what value is, right? Um, you're kind of choosing your way. And a smart bank will look and say, what is that and how do I drive it? I think the, your original question, though, really revolved around a little bit around the, the evolution of the technology space in banking. And I think that in and of itself is actually, while it, it probably seems desperately dismal to, to Devin, given uh, where it's at with these legacy systems and a lot of problems, it has advanced leaps and bounds. You know, my, my father actually comes from the 
semiconductor semiconductor development industry. And so we've had lots of talks about issues like standards and so on and the absence of them. For me, there's this uh, a wonderful word in India. Uh, I think it's somebody, uh, uh, Nishad, you'll probably correct me when I butcher it, but uh, 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 I think it's Gujad. Is that it? The uh, this Jugard, yeah, it's yeah. Jugard, yeah. It's Jugard. And so it's this view of saying, in spite of all these limitations, how do I take what I have and make something happen? Right. And and so I'm going to pull together pieces and parts. And and because of these legacy systems, because of these, you know, you know, perfectly ridiculous ways of thinking about things today, and you know, and you know, he uh, Devin mentioned um, you know. Cobalt. That's no exaggeration. You can find plenty of cobalt sitting out there still today. But really smart, innovative technology companies work beyond that. And, and we work in spite of it. But it is getting decidedly better. Uh, you know, five years ago, almost everything was not in the cloud and now is in the cloud. Uh, open interfaces are making it much easier to move information. And we aren't even bearing that cost. Banks are looking and saying, it's valuable to be open. It's valuable to have an architecture where I can reach out to a FinTech and plug in a technology or at least evaluate it and test it. And so it, it is certainly not marching at the pace of uh, you know, the semiconductor industry in terms of uh, uh, change, uh, but it is in fact changing and it's getting easier for companies like our own to uh, serve financial institutions. So I think the horizon for both consumers and businesses is actually better from financial institutions than it probably ever has been. But there's a lot in the pipeline that still impedes and slows, but that is in fact changing. Yeah, no, fascinating. Um, I think, go ahead. Yeah, I, was think, I was saying that the, the important thing is this whole the gap between the tech and the behavioral aspect is actually in my opinion, uh, the degree of domain expertise available or not. And as your domain expertise grows, you kind of tend to build products that are closer to what people want. It's just, it, it, would, be a, it would be a reasonable way of looking at life. Uh, but what happens is in that case is, you know, sometimes we get so caught up with the, with the tech that in that word, there is this, the second part, which is logi, which is logic. We kind of ignore the, the logic and keep focusing on the tech. And that's where we tend to go wrong. If we focused on the logic first and then, uh, you know, looked at the tech, probably we would build products differently. Unfortunately, there's this mouse company who's taken over the name Logitech already. So people are not very happy in changing the word technology to Logitech. But otherwise, I mean, I would, I would sincerely, you know, uh, go to the Webster's Dictionary and tell them, you know, let's change the name of the word technology to Logitech, where we put logic before the tech. That's the way I've been trying good, to, you know, evangelize good, this. Good point, and I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, the interesting, um, interesting comments. Um, we're having fun. Time flies. We've done this. Um, we're going over an hour, so um, I think we need to wrap up. Uh, before I wrap up, I'd um, like to give you guys an opportunity to kind of give out your social media or where people can reach to you, the type of people you're trying to connect, and any other closing remarks. Devin, you want to go easy. first? Yeah. Uh, uh, I'll just go. Yeah. I mean, it's easy for me. My company's uh, name is Fable Fintech. My portal is fablefintech.com. Uh, you'll find me there and you'll find a lot of other things. But uh, otherwise, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. So, Nashad Contractor, um, LinkedIn, and definitely Fable Fintech. Check it out, guys. Um, Devin? Uh, yeah, so this was a lot of fun. Thank you, uh, Patty, Patrick, and Nishad. This was a, a really fun conversation and can't wait for the next one. Um, so micronotes.ai uh, is, uh, is the URL. Um, I'm Devin Kincaid. You can find me there. Uh, we're looking uh, to partner with financial institutions that are interested in using data uh, and, uh, and, and analytic technologies to improve their customers' and members' lives. So reach out. Um, love to hear from you. Love to work with you. Awesome. Micronauts.ai and Kincaid is K-I-N-K-E-A-D. Um, thank you, Devin. I enjoyed it as well and looking forward to a round two maybe on the behavioral um, stuff around financial innovation. Patrick, <laughs> your closing remarks. 
Yeah, first of all, um, uh, apologies to Nishad and so on for butchering any Hindi that I tried to use. But, <laughs> 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 but uh, um, you know, we're all about helping lenders who are really not satisfied with their ad. How do we how do we reach more? How do we do better? How do we better serve the people that we uh, we reach? Uh, we are uh, global in scope. Um, you can find us at uh, Verde Intl. Uh, dot com so v e r d e i n t l dot com and um, uh, I'm Patrick Riley goofy spelling the last name I, I guess my ancestors really didn't know how to spell but uh, r e i l y and uh, so um, and you can also find me uh, through our website great thank you uh, so much Noshad Pat and Devin for coming today and sharing um, your wisdom your remarks. I really enjoyed the show. Thank you for coming on the FinTech Talk Show. Everyone, we, we are on multiple channels, but do check out our Substack, fintechtalk.substack.com. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you, you very much. much.